welcome to episode 47 of Tea or Books. I'm Rachel. And I'm Simon. And today we are going to be talking about um, sequels by the author versus sequels not by the author. And who do we need to thank for this topic, Simon? Oh, Karen slash K. Both names seem to be used, but thank you, Karen (laughs) slash K. (laughs) Wonderful topic suggestion. Um, And then we are going to be discussing um, two books by Sybil Bedford, which are A Compass Error and Pleasures and Landscapes. So, first of all, Simon, how are you? You've just had a wonderful trip. I have, thank you very well. I've just come back from Toronto. So I think in the last episode, when we did Canadian literature, I explained it was because I was off to Toronto. Um, and you can see I'm still saying Toronto rather than Toronto, so I, I never <laughs> call them. Um, and yeah, I got back um, well, about a day and a half ago, I guess, uh, as we were recording on a Monday night. Um, and it was wonderful, yes. Yeah. So I went to Stephen Leacock's house as planned, which was quite a moving experience. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, the rest of Aurelia is, is, there's not a lot to do, but it's, uh, there are very pretty bits. <laughs> <laughs> there are bits that are less pretty. Um, we, I met up with friend of the podcast, Darlene, who, oh, lovely, uh, Darlene. lovely Darlene, for who blogs at Cozy Books. Um, Cozy with an S. I learned that's not how Canadians generally spe- spell it. So it's a little, little joke from Darlene that is, I've never understood, but <laughs> now I do. <laughs> um, Bought some books. I'd saved up some of my Project 24 credits. So I bought six books because I was, uh, I was trying to buy just Canadian authors and I ended up buying five Canadian authors and one Hungarian. So, oh. yeah. Are you going to tell us what you bought? Let's see if I can remember them all. So I bought two books by Ethel Wilson, um, who wrote the Persephone book, Hetty Dorval. Oh, right, yeah. Uh, and they were called, uh, The Equations of Love and Swamp Angel. I mean, Swamp Angel is a terrible title, but, <laughs> um, but they're beautiful hatbacks. I bought a Stephen Lee Cup book I didn't have called My Remarkable Uncle. Um, oh. In fact, it's quite a, quite an ugly copy that I bought in the first bookshop I went to and then discovered it was in al- almost every bookshop I went to. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen Leacock is quite um, prolific in Canada. Um, I bought a biography of him by Margaret something, <laughs> which was for sale at his house. Um, I bought Letters of Margaret Lawrence and Adele Wiseman. Um, Margaret Lawrence is another one of the author's I mentioned in the last episode. Um, and the Hungarian is someone called Frigias something. <laughs> it's, um, the book's called A Journey Around My Skull. Um, and it's nonfiction. It's about, it's by someone who discovered he had a brain tumor back in, I think, the 1930s before much of that, what was going on at that in those medical cases was understood. And he sort of documented firsthand his experiences of it. And it's a book that Oliver Sacks writes about. Um, wow. so I thought I'd. It was a lovely New York Review of Books Classics edition. So I couldn't resist. I broke my Canadian authors only rule for that one. Well, there we are. Yeah. So I was pleased with my my selection and, um, yeah, pleased that I didn't end up finding more than nine books that I wanted because nine is all that I was allowed to buy. So I've still got three books I can buy in the rest of 2017. Mm. Well, I mean, I think you've done very well. I'm very impressed. Thank you very much. Um, I mean, I slightly cheated in that Darlene gave me two books, but um, <laughs> I also gave her two books. So there's space on the shelves for them. Um, well, there and, we I, are. and I can't remember what she gave me. <laughs> Coral Glynn by Peter, some, Peter Cameron was one of them, um, which she wrote about on her blog a while ago. And the other one, I can't remember, but it looks very funny about vicars in English countryside. <laughs> oh, sounds <laughs> yeah, great. Yeah. Um, what are you reading at the moment? Um... Do you know what? I'm actually I'm in between books. I went on a train journey today to visit my my best friend, and um, I forgot. I realised as soon as I left the house, I didn't bring a book. I left the house without a book today. 
which never happens oh, no, in Rashford. Yeah, how bizarre. Yeah. Um, so I didn't have a book with me today, but I just finished this morning um, the latest in my Thrush Green series by Miss Reed, which I'm still loving. Uh, which was that? Can you remember? I, Does it matter? No, they're all the same, aren't they? <laughs> um, I can't actually. I think it's fair. <laughs> Thrush Green or something like that. It's great. I've got two more coming on their way, so I'm reading my way through. Um, and I think actually I'm going to a talk um, by... I want to say Julian Barnes. So I'm reading my next one that I'm going to read is Sense of an Ending. That is his book, right? That is his book, yes. Yeah. So I'm going to be reading that next. I'm also knee deep in a pile of books about female botanists for my latest university essay. <laughs> um, yeah. It's very interesting, actually, Simon, that little uh, <laughs> at the end. Um, well, it sounds fascinating. Maybe we'll do it on the <laughs> podcast one day. So, but no, we definitely won't. <laughs> I guess if I had to read about a branch of science, botany would be maybe top half. So, Yeah, I mean, of all of the sciences, it's probably yeah. the most literary in many ways. That's interesting. Um, interesting idea. Because hmm. hmm. the only, only science I ever do read is neuroscience, and by that I mean not Oliver Sacks. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, oh, we, yes, we talked about it in our Clergyman versus Scientists episode, didn't we? Yes, we did. Uh, yes, uh, inspired by your love of female botanists. Mm-hmm. Um, I have read The Sense of an Ending. We talked, I think I talked about it in our recent episode on uh, literary prizes. Ah, um, yes. I'd be interested to hear what you think about it. If, is that because you don't think I'm going to like it? Um, well, I, I actually don't know. I was a bit underwhelmed by it. I just didn't really feel anything about it. So, okay. I, well, I'll get you I mean... to see if you have stronger opinions. I always have strong opinions. <laughs> One way or another. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm currently reading uh, The Past is Myself by Christine Bielenberg. Be- no, not Bielenberg. 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 Um, which is a slightly foxed edition, and it's a book published in 1968, which I'm reading for the 1968 Club. Mm. Um, it's a really stupid title because everyone's memoirs are about the past. <laughs> no one writes a memoir <laughs> about the future. <laughs> so. Um, but it's actually about being in Nazi Germany from 19, or whenever Nazis came to power, 1933, was that? Oh, Simon, don't ask me. Gosh, I mean, I've just read it, but, um, and I should know. (laughs) From the, from the early 1930s through to the end of the Second World War, and she is English, but she's married a German and become, she's rescinded her English citizenship, um, in, I think, the late 20s. Um, and she is very much, Part, not a Nazi, but she's part of a sort of underground resistance. Um, oh. Yeah, it's non-fiction, and it's, um, it's really good, and she led a really interesting life, but there's something about it that is not... I feel like it could have been a better book, but it feels bad to criticise the writing of someone <laughs> who has lived a much more heroic and noble life than I will ever lead. So, Christine, you, you've won this one. But, um, <laughs> but it's certainly fascinating, and I always think it's good to read perspectives on the you know, also new perspectives on experiences of the second world war because i've read lots of home front novels um i've read a f- not that many actually things about f- people fighting from the english side but um but it's yeah to read about P- germans who were anti-hitler is i think um important for helping us to remember that it isn't a, entirely a them versus us on nationalistic lines no absolutely yeah. Mm. 
So yes, let's let's segue into our first topic. Um, actually, not really a segue. I'm just going to start <laughs> talking about it. Um, which yes, Karen emailed the other day, and we've had a few um, comments and emails for topics that I must make sure I note down and don't forget. So thanks very much, people. Um, yes. You can sense <laughs> you can sense that trains and bicycles are on the horizon, and you're trying to fend <laughs> it off. <laughs> um, or is it just Rachel under a different name? I don't know. <laughs> Uh, and it pairs very nicely with our second half because um, the Compass Era is a sequel. Indeed, it's almost like it was meant to be. But um, so yes, the, the topic that Karen su- suggests is um, sequels by the author versus sequels by another author, and we're, th- we're talking, um, I guess, not series like where people write a, a trilogy deliberately, but where uh, which we have to have talked about in a previous episode, I think. But um, but yes, where we yes, we didn't we. Instead, it's when a sequel is written which isn't necessarily planned when the first book was written, uh, although it won't always be obvious or easy to tell that, I guess. And then versus books like um, Mrs. De Winter by Susan Hill, for example, which were written as a sequel to a famous novel, but not written by the author themselves. Um, Have you read many such books, Rachel? Well, I was trying to think if I have. I mean, I don't know whether I would necessarily know if the person is meant to write a sequel or not you start with an example and then that might trigger me some ideas sure it is harder to think um of of that's oh yeah of the of whether or not the author intended to add more obviously if there's a long gap it's sort of mm. easier to tell and then there's something like go set a watchman by happily which i haven't read which is sort of a prequel i guess but something like that where she never really seemed to intend it to be published and then it just came years after and the things like the sequels to The L-Shaped Room, which I might have talked about in our series, I can't really tell whether The Backward Shadow and Two is Lonely are intended from the outset. They they, they move away from the bedsit setting of The L-Shaped Room, which is one of my favourite books uh, by Lynnry Banks, and they, they follow the main character into this different world, but it doesn't really connect particularly with the earlier books, it, it, other than it's got the same central character and a couple of the other characters pop up now and then. Um, but it definitely feels part of a different world. But in terms of books written by other people, um, I've not read a huge number. I haven't read Mrs. De Winter, which is my example, and that's largely because I read Rebecca's Tale by Sally Bowman, which is a sequel to Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier, and which I thought was terrible. <laughs> really hated it. Um, not least because Rebecca is given... The, the narrative is split into different people and Rebecca is given a significant section which sort of seems to completely undermine Daphne de Maurier's brilliant way of having this character who we never see on the page because she's dead before the novel begins but, mm. but obviously haunts the book throughout and then Sally Bowman's like well that was she obviously forgot to add her I'll just make her own narrative here <laughs> <laughs> um, and I mean I don't think it was particularly well written either um and there's, yeah, there's a whole industry, I guess, of Austin sequels, of which yeah. I think I've only read one, which is um, Diana Burchill's Mrs. Darcy's Dilemma, which I thought was brilliant. And that's because she's a very good imitator of Austin. Have you read any of the many Austin sequels? No, I haven't. And I have to say, I mean, I've read um, Mrs. De Winter. Oh, OK. Uh, which I didn't like. But then you know me and Susan Hill. Um, a, a checkered pass. Well, not like you're not even checkered, really, is it? <laughs> It's all one colour and it's and it's a bad one. <laughs> yeah, just black. Um, and yeah, I didn't enjoy it very much actually. But then um, I don't really know what I was expecting. 
I suppose it's, it's quite difficult because the whole time you're reading it, you're thinking, you know, but this isn't Daphne du Maurier or this, is, this isn't that author. So, you know, I, but you know, it's not. So I should have expected it to be different. But I suppose for me, I'm very much a person who feels like once an author's finished a story, the story's finished and I don't want to know anything else about it because that's the character's are kind of have been created by that person and they had an idea for them and and I don't want to know what somebody else thinks might have happened to them beyond that point if you see what I mean um I'd rather them just remain as they were because often terrible things happen to them in these sequels and I think no I'd rather just think of them as being happy as they were at the end <laughs> I don't want to think about any sad things something I do like though is prequels I find prequels quite interesting like thinking about or not necessarily prequels, but kind of the untold story. So, for example, I really like Wide Slug SCC by Jean Reese, which is the prequel, well, not but kind of a prequel to yeah, yeah. an imagined prequel to Jane Eyre, um, talking about Bertha Mason and her life in um, the West Indies and the reason why perhaps she's become mad and things like that, which I find that kind of concept I really like. But the... The, the continuation of a story written by somebody else I don't like as much. So if I'm thinking of Jane Austen sequels. I know they've done lots of them um, recently. I think there was like a whole series, wasn't there, for each of the books recently done by, was it Crime Writers or something? No, it wasn't Crime Writers. It was like Joanna Trollope did Sense and Sensibility. And, um, somebody Val McDermott did, did do one, yeah, Northanger Abbey. Yeah. Um, I um, think those were sort of modern updatings rather than sequels. Oh, right, okay. Um, but you do remind me actually that I have read more Austin sequels than I had realised, and that I read that there was one that was a bit popular in the blog blogosphere a few years ago by Sybil Brinton called um, "Old Friends and New Fancies," which was the first Austin sequel, and it was written in early the first decade of the twentieth century, I think. Um, oh, and she puts, yeah, it was published by Source Books, I think, uh, or republished by Source Books, and she puts characters from all of the novels in together. Oh, um, which is, and it's quite, it is quite fun. I thought it was well done because it, it she you know, makes courtships between couples from different novels and you know enmities and all that sort of thing, um, and. It's all, it's all very silly because obviously those characters populate different worlds <laughs> um, and Austin yeah. never intended anything like this. But I think it's, it's one of those things that requires a good understanding of Austin and affection for her and thus makes makes it work out quite well um, because she Sybil Brinton knows what she's what her ambitions are and you know she's not trying to write a continuation of the story as such. She's more just thinking, wouldn't it be fun if we put all these people together? Yeah. Um, but I did used to read, or occasionally still do read, a blog about um, all things Jane Austen, which used to review the sequels that came to their desk. And I do remember a very amusing review of a book called To Become One, oh. <laughs> the, 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 <laughs> which was the um, the uh, marriage of Mr. and Mrs. Darcy. Um, I think owed probably more to Fifty Shades of Grey than to Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> I see. I've, I've now just got the Spice Girls in my head. Um, <laughs> Which is no bad thing. No. Um, that's, I mean, I find that quite interesting, actually, the idea that people are feel very much like they want to continue, particularly Jane Austen stories, because pretty, I mean, all of them do end on a marriage. and um, We never see the end result so I think there is this kind of curiosity from people about oh what what happened afterwards you know what would it have been like to see them married and I get that but I don't want to like Jane Austen finished the stories there for a reason and I don't like this whole imagining I just like to think of them 
you know, being off in the sunset, having lovely time. I don't want to think about the realities of what it was like for them to be married or the fact they probably died in childbirth or something horrible. <laughs> um, <laughs> of course. <laughs> but imagine if that was just a sequel. <laughs> she died yeah. in childbirth. The end. <laughs> Darcy married again. <laughs> um, yeah, I think for me it does depend... Firstly, on how well the person knows the book. I know we've seemed to have mostly focused on Jane Austen, but I can't think of that many other examples. I'm sure there are many. Um, but if, if they have a great knowledge and affection for the original, um, and they're trying to do something a little unusual, then I think I can yes. forgive it and find it enjoyable. If it's just a sort of jumping off point because they can't think of their own story and they want to get more readers, <laughs> um, which perhaps is no one's actual ambition, but you never know. Um, then that's much less of an attraction. Yeah, I think if you're just trying to sort of imitate the the voice of Jane Austen and you're just literally just doing a continuation, that's not really for me. What I like is is novels where people are doing something different. So, for example, The Longbourn by Joe Baker. I made that up, that's not her name, I, I don't know. Something like that, yeah. Um, I haven't read it myself, but I've heard lots of people talking about it and the fact that it's it's Pride and Prejudice from the perspective of the servants. That's really interesting. It's mm. those those stories that aren't necessarily sequels but fill in gaps, I think, those are really interesting and try and tell the story from people's perspective whose voices you don't hear in, in the actual novel themselves. For me, I think staying within the framework of the original story and trying to tell that from a different angle, that's absolutely fine and interesting and kind of inventive, I think, in lots of ways, because you can do a lot with that and you can talk about, well, why was this person silenced and why weren't they saying anything in the novel and what was really going on there? And whereas I think, and you're also still using the story very much. You're not kind of going outside of perhaps Jane Austen's imagination or the novelist's, the original novelist's imagination. Whereas the sequels, I just think, well, that's, it's kind of, it's not really a sequel, is it? It's, it's like you taking someone else's characters mm. and just making up your own story. And there has become an increasing trend of people churning those out just before a copyright ends, I've noticed. Yeah. Um, there was Peter Pan in Scarlet, which I didn't read, but potentially was very good. Um, I can't remember who wrote it. Um, uh, oh, I know. I can't think. Georgina something? Okay. Did you read it? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> I did read um, whatever the sequel to the Winnie the Pooh books was called. Return to the Hundred Acre Wood, maybe, by Benjamin something. Oh. All books mentioned. All the... <laughs> I put a list on com. Sorry, guys. Um, and I remember quite enjoying it, but it just... It, I think the world Amon created is so perfect. There, and and the ending to um, the House of Pooh Corner is so poignant. I find where Chris Robin goes off to school, I find it an extremely moving ending. That there, an extra book doesn't really feel um, necessary at all. But um, but I guess you know the House of Pooh Corner is itself a sequel. I don't know whether or not that was planned. But, um, it is a wonderful book. <laughs> I don't, do you know what? I don't imagine that A. A. Milne would have done because I don't think he particularly thought of himself as a children's writer, did he? He didn't, absolutely not. Yeah, he was very famous for plays and a detective novel when he first wrote children's books. And I don't think, I never get the feeling that he particularly planned what he was doing at all in terms of what the next book would be. It's just whatever caught his fancy next or whatever, yeah, whatever idea came to him. So it's quite possible that just that more stories came out of his time with Christopher Robin. He thought, I'll put these in a book. 
Yeah, I think actually there's kind of I'm just I've got I've got ideas now. I've thought of things. Oh, good. Um, I know it's all just coming to me in a rush. I don't have a brain normally by the second week of half term, so <laughs> good. Like I'm still here. Um, there was um, I've the uh, now I can't speak. It's now, really working I beautifully. I this, this this brain brain idea. This brain yeah. idea. Oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Tune in for more erudition. <laughs> um, Arthur Conan Doyle, Sherlock Holmes. He wrote the. He killed off Sherlock Holmes and then oh, yes. brought it back again, um, due to reader popularity. And I think, um, you know, for me personally, I don't really see a difference in the in the novels that he wrote. Uh, in that last novel, I think, is just as great as the others. And I, I mean, I love anything to do with Sherlock Holmes. Um, but there are lots of Victorian children's writers who wrote much longer series than they intended um, because mm. their books were unexpectedly popular and a lot of these were female writers who were writing for money and needed to support families etc so for example I, I don't think I mean I could be wrong on this but I'm pretty sure that um, Francis Hodgson not Francis Hodgson but um, Ella Montgomery didn't plan on writing as many of the Anna Green Gables books as she okay. did um, and also um, Louisa May Alcott I don't think she intended on writing all of the the Little Women series, um, because she very much wanted to be recognised as a adult writer, and all of her adult fiction has gone very much out of print. Um, and she did write a lot of it, apart from um, you know, like the ones that Stephanie brought back. But, uh, Stephanie brought back any by? No, I'm talking about Frances. Yeah, you're, you're, you keep you're obsessed with her. Come on. <laughs> no, I love her, but I think also great. for for her as well, like she. Um, you know, she was under a lot of pressure to write sequels to her books, but I don't think she did um, for any of the children's ones. But um, like Louisa May Alcott also had um, lots of adult novels that she wanted to mm-hmm. be more read and more important and more taken notice of than they were. But, you know, she needed the money and it's your people fell in love with Little Women. And then, you know, she ended up writing, I think there's three sequels, aren't there? So, um, yeah. or two. Well, it depends whether you're in America or England. In England, there's three sequels. In America, they put the first two books into one book, I think. Yes. No, because we have Good, because Good Wives is very much a separate book in England, always has been. Yeah. Um, so. Which it was, it meant one episode of Friends was very confusing because it didn't make sense with the English version. But anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I was like, Beth dies? Yes. Um, <laughs> and, and then Red Ink kept waiting for her to die. It's like, she's still alive by the end of it. <laughs> Yeah, very confusing. Um, but yeah, so there's those sorts of books that are, I suppose, by unexpected popularity makes people think, oh, okay, let's do, let's do another one. Um, and there must be loads of examples of that, but perhaps, you know, we just don't know about it because we're so used to seeing them as pairings or, you know. True, yeah, if we don't, if we don't, if we just have them all sort of like, here's the box set, then we can't yeah. know what the process were. I mean, I think C.S. Lewis's series might have been similar. Um, and Mary Poppins, for example, where P.L. Travers yeah. was written, one of those have written many decades after the rest of them were, um, which, you know, maybe she just needed money for a new coat or something. But, yeah. um, and I just remembered one that I do, one series I did really like, um, Guy Fraser Sampson's sequels to the Mappanutia books. Oh, yes. um, and again, I think, as with the Dina Birchall one, as with Sybil Brinton, it's it's when someone has such a understanding and love of the original that it that it does, it's in my mind at least work. Um, but I had an, remember an interesting discussion had at a conference once about fan fiction, um, ah. and you know whether or not it was it could ever be credible, etc. And I did put up my hand and think, say like, well, isn't Wide Circus OC basically fan fiction? <laughs> like I th- I think there is. 
there there's this whole world out there that you one may or may not have entered of fan fiction, some better than others. <laughs> but mm. um, certainly, the internet seems to be taking up that space. Yes, and um, I suppose there's a fine line, really, isn't there? Because... Yeah, I don't. I wouldn't want to discount all of it off the bat, but I mean, I I think there's still a sense that there is more legitimacy once such a thing becomes published. Although, you know, sometimes Twilight fan fiction becomes Fifty Shades of Grey. And there's a record, yes. Fifty Shades of Grey, mentioned twice in one, one T.O. Books episode. <laughs> <laughs> I should say I've not read it. So um, Perhaps it's brilliant, but I suspect it isn't. <laughs> I've read a page, and that's as far as I got. Um, would you like to play a little game, Rachel? Okay. Which is, I'm going to tell you the name of the sequel. You've told me what the original book is, based on Mental Flossers. Eleven oh, okay. book sequels you probably didn't know existed. Okay, yep, go Although for I, it. I'm going to wait that you did know some of these existed, and I'm probably not going to do all 11. But, okay. um, the Starlight, the Starlight Barking. Oh, that's the sequel to 101 Dimensions. Very good. Um, I'm going to skip that one. Um, The Book of the Green Planet. Ooh. Sounds spacey. Um, War of the Worlds. It's actually a sequel to E.T., although I don't think E.T. Oh. was it. I'm not sure. Oh, the E.T. was a novelization of the of the film. Oh, come on, Mental Floss, you're better than this. <laughs> uh, the next one is Little Men and Joe's Boys. I feel like you probably do know the answer yeah. to that. Yeah, Little um, Here's a good one for quizzes. Closing time. I, I feel like I know this. Is this the sequel to Last Orders? Well, that would be very sensible, but no, it's the sequel to Catch-22. Oh, I didn't know Jessica that. Catch 22, which I haven't read. Have you read that? No, I haven't, and I didn't know it had a sequel. No, I don't think it was published more than 30 years, apparently. Um, wow. More than 30 years later. Um, oh, here's a tricky one Paradise Regained. <laughs> <laughs> Is it possibly Paradise Lost? <laughs> Hooray! Um, and yes, I think some of these are a bit of a giveaway. The second Jungle Book, you can probably work. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's draw a so, so yes, let's do a quick close to that. But if you Google eleven books sequels you probably didn't know existed or something, you can do the rest of those yourself, reader, <laughs> reader, listener, and presumably reader. But um, yeah, so that, those are some unusual ones, <laughs> at least. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think you know some people really like sequels and some people don't at all. Some people hate series and some people love them. And I think for all, some authors, I suppose there must be either financial pressures or sometimes just like loving a particular character or wanting to go back to it or feeling like a story mm-hmm. hasn't finished. And I wonder, and it's quite interesting when you you read books where an author is left 10 or 15 years or whatever between mm-hmm. the first and the last. And I wonder whether, you know, their writing style has changed or has, you know, something's different. Like, can they reclaim the voice that they had in that first book? Yeah, because I like The Dive of a Provincial Lady by Ian Delafield, uh, which, again, I think we talked about in the series podcast. It's it's not clear whether she knew there'd be four books in that series. And the first, mm-hmm. so the last one is, what, ten years after the first one, I guess? Yeah, it's quite a, yeah, it's quite a, bl- a gap between them, isn't there? Yeah, um, and obviously they were collections from Time and Tide, so it's probably more a case of she just, she just kept being asked to write them for Time and Tide, so I thought, might as well put them into a book. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, but, yeah, it, I don't think I've ever been in the situation where um, I was really looking forward to a sequel coming out to a to a book I already liked, bec- mostly, you know, as usual, because all the authors are like are dead. So, um, 
So, yeah, I've never been through that sort of journey of anticipation, waiting for the new one, and then, you know, disappointment or happiness and what it's like. Yeah. Have, do you have you? No, I can't think that I have, because normally when I'm I'm reading something that's, that's... Well, actually, I was quite excited when I initially heard about the... Harper, the Harper Lee, the new Harper Lee. Mm, mm. And then as soon as I read more about it, I was like, oh, actually, no, I don't really want to read this. And I, I didn't. Um, largely because I felt that it's not fair to read something which someone clearly didn't want published. Um, and mm. I think, yeah, I haven't ever really sort of come across a book that has been, it's normally these sort of lost books, isn't it, these days that... Oh, that does remind me, actually. So you know that Persephone have just published Guide Your Daughters? Yes. Which is very exciting. Very pleased. Um, they mentioned in the... I think yes. it was in the Persephone Bainley, this... Um, was it Unguarded Moments? Yes. This unpublished sequel. And what's... Ha- if it's an unpublished sequel, what's going to happen? Well, I don't know. I don't know, Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> Simon, because I uh, can imagine that would be wonderful. Oh, I, so apparently it's about... Um, the main character with him, I can't remember, despite loving that book. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what's her name? Morgan. Morgan something like yeah. Um, as an adult and, and how she deals with her children. Um, and I'm beside myself with wanting to read this book. So please make Guard Your Daughters a bestseller so Persephone are persuaded to publish it. Yes, and honestly, do buy it because it's wonderful. And I was so excited to receive my copy and have um, both of us in the back. Yes, so they've they haven't done a prologue, or epilogue, or whatever, it, uh, or preface, or afterward rather. Uh, as usual, they've just collated lots of different contemporary and recent reviews, including ours. So okay. yeah, very exciting, and also rather bravely, including lots of negative reviews, <laughs> um, <laughs> including you know bloggers that. Uh, writing today as well as contemporary reviews so i think it's a really nice idea um, yeah and you know fulfilled a life ambition to get quoted in a persephone book yeah so, hurrah <laughs> very exciting um this hasn't been a particularly productive discussion seeing as we can't really think of of ones that we don't the ones written by the same author yeah, um, I mean, no, no one's gonna be surprised no. so no. <laughs> we've not managed everyone. it very well oh actually the one that Kay mentioned i should go back to the original email because she's basically <laughs> done it given answer for us she did mention why sagas see but also the enchanted august which i didn't read again it's not... that book by who hmm karen you've let me down you haven't given me the whole you haven't given, done all my work for me so quick google <laughs> the enchanted august is by brenda bowen um so again it's not by the same author but it's an, a sequel to the enchanted april by elizabeth von arnim Oh, I see. Uh, oh, do you know, I've never heard of that. Yeah, it was out two or three years ago, and I remember um, quite a lot of bloggers writing about it, or I can't remember how many of them actually read it, but, you know, it was quite interesting. Um, and I didn't read it. But there you go. But oh, I suppose you know, Elizabeth von Arnhem did herself do various sequels to to, um, to her book, so we can <laughs> segue back into that, because she did two sequels, didn't she, to Elizabeth and her German garden? Yeah. Elizabeth of her German uh... garden? Yeah. Um, in, yes, in a solitary snow. In a, a solitary summer. Se- a solitary, I always get a solitary summer, summer and in a summer season mixed up. <laughs> the one is by Elizabeth Taylor. Yeah. And then so, Elizabeth and Rubin? I don't know. Yes, Elizabeth, Elizabeth and Rubin, yeah. yes. Yeah. So, <laughs> in conclusion, <laughs> I'm pretty sure we've exhaustively covered this topic. <laughs> um, I think. I, I'm i not dead against other authors writing sequels, but in general, probably 
would turn instead to what the author themselves had chosen to write if there were a sequel. Although, you know, it does come with, I think you're less likely to be disappointed if another author does it, because at least you can then think, oh, they didn't do it well, but and it's, it doesn't really bother you. Whereas if the author themselves does it badly, then that's when it's a bit more disappointing. Yes. But I still choose the author themselves. Yeah, me too, every time. I think it's lovely when people, like I say, I like it when people try and put different twists on the mm-hmm. book. But for me, the author always finishes the story at a particular point, And unless they choose to reopen the door, then I'd just rather not know what other people think might have happened because I want to stay in my own little world of what, <laughs> what you know, lovely things have happened and they're dancing around somewhere. <laughs> lovely. Um, thank you very much for suggesting that, Karen. I hope we've yeah. done it just as I maybe <laughs> yeah. definitely haven't, but thank you for suggesting it. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, do you keep your suggestions coming? Anybody who would like us to massacre your topic? <laughs> uh, but a wonderful segue into um, the second half. So the book we're going to look at, The Compass Era by Sybil Bedford, is a sequel to A Favourite of the Gods. And this, the reason we did A Compass Era is chiefly because it was written in 1968, and so I could read it for the 1968 <laughs> club. <laughs> Two thousand one stage. Exactly. And also, I'd read A Favourite of the Gods quite a long time ago and didn't remember that much about it. Um, but we're doing that, which is a novel, versus uh, Pleasures and Landscapes, which is non-fiction travel writing, which is a collection from various different periods of Sybil Bedford's writing um, Right across many decades. She lived a long, long time. Um, mm. She was 95, I think, when she died in 2006, maybe. Um, but most of them are from the 1950s and 60s, so they're, they're vaguely contemporary with, with the novel. Yeah. Um, when did you first read these books? Well, I read um, I read both A Favourite of the Gods and A Compass, of, and a Compass Era straight after each other when I was on holiday in Greece years ago. I can't remember when it was. Let me have a look at my blog. Um I think it was, yeah, 2012, apparently. That's oh, what, yeah. five, five years ago, is that right? Yes, um, yes. I was like, what year is it now? <laughs> Where are we? Um, <laughs> and then um, Pleasures and Landscapes I bought when it came out, and that was three years ago. So um, I read them kind of, I got, I went through a real Sybil Bedford phase and sort of read everything I could find. Um, and, yeah, so I found them, I and it's quite interesting, actually, because, Having read Pleasures and Landscapes after reading the two novels, you can kind of see how much of her own life and her own experiences goes into those books. Uh, yes, we, have, we should in fact give a quick summary, shouldn't we? Mm. So, um, any preference? No, you do whatever you feel most comfortable with. Okay, well, because I've just read um, the Compass Era, a Compass Era, if I remember the title, <laughs> <laughs> I'll do that. So, um, I'll just quickly cover off a favourite of the gods as well. So for some context. Mm. So the, the first novel, um, A Favourite of the Gods, is basically about um, three generations of women. There's um, Anna, Constanza and Flavia. Fla- Flavia? Flavia? Flavia, I think. Flavia. Um, Anna... Um, oh gosh, I'm the first one. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> the um, Anna marries an Italian prince, I believe. Um, how yes. quickly has the daughter Constanza... Um, but um, ends up leaving the prince after he has an affair and doesn't understand that that's that her morality doesn't encompass an open marriage. Mm. Um, and then they go back to England, where Constanza can't ever speak to her real father again, and she 
reacts against that sort of maternal upbringing to be much wilder, um, and then in turn has her daughter Flavia, and presumably things happen to her as well, I forget. <laughs> um, and then in a compass era, which is the book we are talking about, um, it starts with Flavia as an older woman who has written about her life, being asked questions about it, and then it goes back into flashback, um, picking up Flavia's sort of um, young adulthood. Um, and f- the first sort of half of the novel really is recounting Anna and Constanza's um, relationship all through reported speech and, you know, Flavia just summarising herself. And in the second half of the book, which I think was rather more successful, Flavia meets a woman called Andre. Um, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, but it's spelled Andre with an E on the end. <laughs> um, and has a sort of liaison with her whilst also trying to protect her mother who has eloped with a married man. Um, and it's all about sort of Flavia's coming of age and learning how to use her intellect and her passions um, without being too vulnerable, I guess. Um, yeah. yeah. So sorry that I can't remember that much of the first book, but Rachel, maybe you'll be able to fill in some gaps. But yeah. talk, talk us first through Pleasures and Landscapes. So um, Pleasures and Landscapes is a series of travel essays that um, Sybil Bedford published over a number of years. So um, going from the kind of pre-war period up until, I think, sort of the 70s, 80s. So um, you're the first one that she's got is uh, de- de- uh, describes Capri in her first um, time back after the war. And we have this wonderful description of, of finally being able to travel through Europe again and what it's like to turn up on this sceptered isle of wonder and have you know drinks by the by the sea and it's just basically all these essays about just this wonderful um holidays that she has and all these ridiculously famous people that she just so happens <laughs> to meet um like martha gellhorn and things like that yes. <laughs> um, and just kind of flitting around between countries and traveling i mean she went all across europe traveling around on planes and buses and cars and and um seeing all these brilliant she has such an eye for detail and she can really bring places to life through not just the landscape but also the people and the way of life and the culture in those places and i mean it just made me think like you know clearly she didn't actually you know have a have a job like most of us (laughs) she just basically spent her life being a bit of a flanners and wandering around europe and it's it's like this kind of enchanted life that feels like it shouldn't be real but but was yeah i found the whole book so suffused with just this relief that war was over yeah. and that she could travel again and she obviously just doesn't really feel herself if she's not moving around yeah um and i didn't normally like travel writing particularly as you probably talked about but i really enjoyed this one because i think she was interested in um in people and in her response to the, her traveling and in the behaviors of the people she met rather than you know, the landscapes and... I mean, she does describe those things, obviously it's in the title, but uh, but I think it's probably more of the pleasures than the landscapes. Yeah. Um, And, oh my gosh, so much about food and so much about wine. Yeah. Um, Everything is dripping in butter constantly. Yeah. (laughs) She's forever eating fish out of the sea, Um, which I enjoyed reading, I think, but there was... I I remember reading and thinking, none of these meals are vegetarian. (laughs) What would I be eating on this holiday? (laughs) exactly (laughs) salad and wine but um i've had worse meals (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, and you know, the Martha Gellhorn bit you mentioned, I loved what she wrote there about, I, I think they were leaning out of a window together and she, she what did she say? She described it as being like a, a scene in a play or something. Yeah. Or like two characters in a surrealist stage production. Um, just found the quote. But uh, yeah, um, she's just such a strong character in the book and it is... Um, I mean, I can see why someone might read it and think this overindulgent woman who is doing the things that all people can't and across Europe, this, you know, deprivation or sort of thing. Yeah. But, uh, and there's definitely an argument to be made for that. But I think giving her perspective, it's done really truly and honestly without, it's not like a personal memoir, but I think it's a, it's very evocative of, of her particular experience of those places and the fine things in those places. Yeah, and I don't think, you know, she's very aware of her own privilege. It's not as if she's like, everybody lives like this. You know, she mm-hmm. knows that she's incredibly lucky to be able to travel the world and do so many interesting things. And, you know, she really relishes her experiences and makes the most of them. And I think it's it's a wonderful, very evocative description also of a world that's gone now. You know, it's, it's pre-war and post-war Europe that she looks at and a world that, you know, where people still went around by donkey and things like that, you know, it's a world that we just don't have anymore. And Remind me, I just, I just read for my book group, Two, Late, Two Middle-Aged Ladies in Andalusia oh. um, by Penelope Chetwood, Chetwood? Um, who I discovered after finishing it was John Betjeman's wife. But um, it's basically her travelling around Andalusia in a... Oh, it's on a donkey. Uh, who is the other middle-aged lady? No, a horse, rather. Sorry, a horse. Um, it, I was quite confused trying to work out who the other middle-aged lady was and discovered it was. It was the camp, no, the marchioness, the marquess. No, something she called the horse. Um, but yeah, I was thinking when I was reading that, which was published in maybe the sixties as well, seventies, that um, the internet has completely changed everything for, in this in in that sort of sense because you don't you're unlikely in places like that to meet anyone who doesn't have contact outside of their village outside their community i mean there are still communities in the world that are like that of course but not there (laughs) yeah um and you know travel is much more simple in some ways um but also people are much more aware of the dangers than they used to because she's very naively just wandering all all over the place um and the same way i don't think bedford ever writes about the dangers of traveling (laughs) she's she never feels that she might you know, be kidnapped or even get lost, particularly. No. And mm. I think, you know, that just kind of leisurely. And what I loved about it is is, is this idea that she wasn't really travelling for any particular purpose. That she, no, wasn't going, no. she wasn't going on holiday to see, oh, yes, I, you know, I really wanted to see this or I, I wanted to go to visit this person or that. It was just, it was a lifestyle. It wasn't really travel as we, we think of it. It was It was just a way of life, of moving between places. Um, yeah. and exploring and looking and just absorbing in different cultures. And, you know, she can speak all the languages and everything else. So she just kind of inserts herself wherever she's going. She's not really a holiday maker, I wouldn't say, in any way, shape or form. No, she's yeah, right, yeah. Um, I've not read, but I, I do own um, The Faces of Justice that she wrote. Did you read that when you were... I have not, no. So that, she, that um, I think... I'm writing saying that she basically writes about justice systems in the places that she travels to. So it seems, on the face of it, an extremely different sort of novel, uh, not novel, um, uh, non-fiction, than, than this one. But I think it would be interesting to read that alongside and see which bits she's highlighted in different different accounts. Yeah. I'll report back. <laughs> 
please do. I'd be interested to know. Yeah. So, yes, tenth the novel. What are your thoughts? Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting that you talked about it as being a novel of two hearts because I very much thought the same. And actually reading it directly after A Favourite of the Gods um, was quite frustrating because basically the first half of A Compass Era is just is basically what you missed last time and mm. then kind of summarising basically the whole of A Favourite of the Gods in a, in a, in a conversation oh, um, yeah. in heavy, you know, brackets I'm putting there. Um, which I was just like, yeah, okay, I know this, you know, I've, I've just read it. Um, and it was quite boring, actually, just reading it mm-hmm. over again. It wasn't sort of told from a, a different perspective or, you know, in, an, in a particularly interesting way. It was just literally, okay, guys, if you haven't read my previous book, here it is. <laughs> um, now let's move on once, once she's told that. And I, I felt that was clumsy, and I think she could have done that in a better way. Um, it did seem bizarrely clumsy, and I—I I mean, even it, as it's become clear, I didn't remember that much of a favorite of the gods. But even, and so I thought, oh great, this will get me up to speed. But even wanting to know happened, it's just so distancing, and to her just sort of churning out all these details of what happened, that I just felt I couldn't engage with it, even though I actually wanted the recap at that point. Yeah. Um, and I'm always frustrated if people report back exact dialogue. It's like yeah. you've not memorized all this dialogue. It's ridiculous. No. I, know, I find that always find that really annoying. Um, and I just like, come on, you didn't, you, you wouldn't possibly have known all this. So this is just silly. It's like my mum told me that then my grandma told me that this book is yeah. like, don't be silly. So that bit is annoying. But uh, the rest of the the latter half, um, I really enjoyed, and I found it very again so evocative. This lifestyle in France, and it's just the ability to. She's such a travel writer, really. You know, she really brings place to life. Um, but she also manages to embody the voice and the emotions of a teenager incredibly well, I think, which is hard to do as an adult. Yeah, I think it's such a shame the first half is so dull and bad, <laughs> basically, because there's a really brilliant 100-page novella in here, basically, yeah. um, which, in fact, is what the blurb <laughs> is tries to pretend it is, because yeah. uh, <laughs> um, it doesn't really mention the first half. Uh, and it really is half and half. It's not as we're not exaggerating here. It does take half the novel before it begins, really. Um, and the way that she paints that relationship um, and the shifting sands of it between those two women uh, is just so beautifully and um, really thoughtfully done. And and that's what I thought was so good about *A Favorite of the Gods* is the way that she wrote relationships between mother and daughter, mm. um, particularly between Anna and Constanza. It's it's her real strength, I think, is. I mean, in, in these examples, it's female friendships slash relationships. It could well, um, she could well do it for men as well. I don't know, but it's it's um, it's that moment by moment changing, but of the way in which people feel about each other without it ever being, you know, so popery where they like you know, turn on a sixpence sort of thing. It's yeah. it's um. It's so subtle, and and you you get what people are thinking and what they're saying and what they're not revealing. Um, particularly in in this novel, where it, where there is some resistance, shall we say, from Andre and some. Um, let, I'm not going to give everything away, but she, yeah, she doesn't she doesn't reveal everything about herself at first. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's and it's so intelligently done that it just seems. Why didn't you trust yourself just to write a hundred page novel? Assume that people may or may not remember the first book, may or may not have read the first book, yeah. and just let it, let it be what it is on its own merits. 
No, absolutely. And I think it was a real mistake to to feel that she had to basically tell everyone what happened in the previous book. Why not just rely on people to have read the previous book? You know, I don't know why she felt the need to do that, because it doesn't really add anything to the story. And I don't think you really need to know about, um, you know, Flavia's family history to be able to read and enjoy the story of her coming of age, really. Um, yeah, absolutely. And we need we need to know a bit about her mum. We didn't need, really need to know anything about her grandmother. No, it was <laughs> um, just unnecessary. Yeah. And it's a shame because it really does, I suppose, water down the intensity of, of this wonderful story that, that could very much be a kind of catcher in the rye, really, sort of tale of, of what but, it is. But good. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I, I very much like it. <laughs> Um, but it, it could be that sort of similar story of, of what it's like to grow up when you've had a difficult childhood, an unconventional childhood in some ways, um, and the first time you kind of, I suppose, your innocence is shattered. And that's really the story, isn't it? It's a, it's a building from one in any other, you know, more than anything else. Um, and it's if she had written it from that perspective and really brought out those themes and, and just focused on that emotional intensity throughout the entirety of the story, maybe made it 150 pages, whatever, it would be wonderful. And I think it would be a much more famous, well-known um, canon- canonical book than, than it is. Um, but it's just that clumsy beginning. I mean, I'm surprised actually that I'd be, I'd be quite interested whether people give up before they get to the mm-hmm. latter half, because it is hard going. Yeah, I, I do remember. Well, I, I remember it was last week, but I, whilst <laughs> I was reading it, I did flick forward and think, "How much more of this is this is there?" Because I, I sort of debated giving up, um, but once I saw that I'd only got ten or fifteen or something pages left of it, I was like, "Okay, fine, I can make it through this. I can, <laughs> I can get to the good stuff." Um, and I'm just shocked that her editor at the time didn't say, "What are you doing, Sybil?" Stop it. But yeah. at the same time, I get the sense from Pleasures and Landscapes that she probably wouldn't have paid much attention to what other people wanted her to do anyway. No, I agree. I think, mm. you know, she obviously had a, uh, she obviously had her reasons. Um, don't ask me what they were. Cause I can't <laughs> imagine what they were, but it's kind of almost as if she assumed that no one was ever going to bother reading her previous book, which for me is quite surprising because personally, I mean, I know we're not talking about favorite of the gods, but I think it's a marvelous book and it's actually one of my mm-hmm. favorite books. Um, is so brilliantly written and so evocative of Italy and France and you know England in the pre-war period and the relationship, as you say, between mother and daughter is so well done. And it's such a fantastic book. And it kind of also diminishes the brilliance of that book by mm-hmm. by reducing it to a series of conversations chucked at the beginning of this one. Like, why would you do that? It just doesn't make sense. And if you had also haven't read that book and then you go to a Compassera, by the time you've waded through all of that, you think, well, I'm not going to bother reading the other one now. Well, that's so such a good point, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of counterintuitive, really. And there was only five years between them, so it was not as though she was writing a sequel 40 years later or something and no. you know, had to it's make sure at a speed. Um, and I think ideally a sequel should be able to be read on its on its own, so I can see that angle of it, but there are ways to do that that don't, <laughs> that don't require you to synopsize for 90 pages. <laughs> yeah, I know, it's very odd. Yeah, but yeah, but I think, yes, ideally we shouldn't let that hopefully diminish the quality of the second half because it really is brilliant yes um have you read anything else by her during your civil bedford phase or after 
trying to think. I probably have. I think actually, do you know, yes, I read one called Jigsaw, oh, which yeah. I didn't like as much. Um, and it's also very autobiographical. I think it's more autobiographical than these ones. Um, it was it was good, but I think, but because I'd fallen so in love with with a favorite of the gods, I just it was a bit disappointing because you know it wasn't as good, but it was still very good. Um, and I've also read a bit of, but not the whole of, a journey to Donatavia. I think it's called. I think it's been republished as something else. It's about her time in um, Mexico. Oh, okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's not it's nonfiction. And then she, yeah, she had quite a big break, didn't she? She wrote. Yeah. Jigsaw was in 89, and that was, I think, the next novel after this, which is 68, so, you know, 20-year gap. Yeah. I feel like I said something else as well, but I can't remember what it was called. It was an early novel. Um, But, yeah. I think her first, yeah, I think her first novel was A Legacy. A Legacy, yes, I read that as well. Oh, yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, that was good. Um, So, yeah, I liked that, but, again, not as much as the others. So, yeah, she's really, I think, I'm quite surprised that she's not more well known. I think she's quite well known within literary circles, but gen- generally, um, I think you know the Daunt books have republished um, three these three of her books, but um, she doesn't seem to be someone that's particularly well known. And she's been out had been out of print for quite a long time. I think before Daunt brought her back. Yeah, and she's one of the people that when I put I think about Instagram or something that we were doing her, and it did get some very enthusiastic responses from people. So she obviously is very much loved by those who um mm. who do know her. Um, and yeah, I think maybe it's just that by the sixties, that's this sort of novel wasn't in fashion, and she didn't really get her chance. Yeah. Did it, did but she's, you know, she's remarkable. It's a shame, you know, Compulary's clumsily constructed, but at the heart of it, there is a fantastic story. And she's a wonderful writer. Um, she's got beautiful turns of phrase. And I would, you know, I, I think you've got to try her at least, but I think you should start with a favourite of the gods. If if people haven't tried her at all, I think that's the best place to, to go in. Yeah, it really is an extraordinary, um, extraordinarily perceptive novel and yeah she's a beautiful she writes beautiful prose it's not you know overly ornate or anything but it um but it is a full field with observation and you know subtlety and it, it's, it's it seems so assured as well particularly in a favorite of the gods that um even though it was only her second novel it just she knew she didn't pander to any of the stereotypes of novel writing i guess she just she knew what what she wanted to depict and she and she yeah, did it, and it yeah. was really interesting structure as well. I think in that one, so maybe she does experiments with structure, and just sometimes it works out really well, like that one, and sometimes not so much, like this one. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's a difficult two books decision for me because I mean, if if the th- all through there, it'd definitely be a favorite of the gods. <laughs> yeah. It's my favorite of the three. Between these two, um, it's harder because I, I really light pleasant landscapes but that the second half of a compass era is so brilliant that it's it's um mm, it's tricky i'm going to pause for a moment one and ask you which one you're going to pick it's oh, a tough decision i think because i just fell in love with the characters from a favorite of the gods and the compass era i'd have to choose a compass era over pleasures and landscapes but pleasures and landscapes is marvelous and wonderful you know really beautiful writing wonderful evocative descriptions and you know i was like writing down places to go on holiday as i was reading <laughs> i found it really inspirational in that sense but I think for the for the characters and for the world that she creates, I'd, I'd still, even though the beginning is is not great, the I'd have to still go with the compass era. Yeah, and I think 
Although Pleasures of Landscapes is probably my favourite travel writing I've read from, from, I haven't read that much, but I really did like it. I think because I can flick to page 100 and start reading from there on a reread, <laughs> then um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm also going to pick A Compass Arrow. Oh, we're in agreement. We are in agreement this week. <laughs> it's nice. <laughs> Miracle. Um, and next episode, I'm going to turn to Rachel to remember the titles of these books because I can never sort them out in my head. <laughs> what are we doing? Um, so what, we don't know what we're doing first, do we? No, no. But second, what's the, you have to remind me for the... Emily Eden is your Oh, uh, yes. So we're going to be, I've talked a couple of weeks ago about reading Emily Eden's The Semi-Attached Couple. <laughs> I turn to you for this, Rachel. Don't yes. let me down. The Semi-Attached Couple, which is wonderful. And there is a sequel, um, yeah. fitting in nicely with our topics today, called The Semi-Detached House. So we are going to be reading the, the end, reading those. Um, I've got to read the second one. You've got to read both of them. And then we are going to be comparing and contrasting them. They are not actually um, sequels, but they are often published together. Oh, they, is, is one not a sequel? If you're... No, I think, I mean, as far as I'm aware, they don't share characters, but... Oh, interesting. Yeah, so I don't, so maybe, think, yeah. I don't know why they're always published together, um, but there we are. Well, yeah, so uh, the, the copy I've got is a uh, Virago that from, you know, the 1980s or whenever they reprinted them, which I imagine is probably the same one you've got. No, I've got a hardback, actually, but... Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. fancy right. one, yeah. Yeah, I see, I see. Mm. <laughs> um, so, yes, I'm looking forward to discussing that. Um, yes, me too. But, yes, all the books and authors we've mentioned, we've mentioned a lot, actually, um, <laughs> even if we haven't said very much about them, <laughs> um, will be listed at stuckinabook.com. Um, and do get in touch if you have any suggestions for future episodes. Yes, please do. We're desperate. It's always bikes versus trains around the corner. <laughs> not bikes versus cars, rather. We've already done trains. We have no more trains to give. No. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Thanks. Bye. bye. bye.